and welcome to another episode of The Code to Career with me, Cameron Blackwood. Today's guest is Milo Dennison. Milo is an experienced tech leader working for some of the largest tech organizations in the world, as well as being an author and also coming from a non-technical background himself. Milo joins us today to discuss how he got into tech in the first place, his experience working in both Europe and the USA, and how you can bridge that gap between the technical teams and the commercial teams. I'm confident this will be an excellent value add if you're interested in working in technology, but you don't necessarily want to code all day, all out. Today's episode of The Coder Career is brought to you by the Zero to Mastery Academy. Zero to Mastery hosts a number of great courses, whether you're trying to get your first job in tech or you're a tech lead trying to level up some of your skills. If you're still learning to code, I really recommend their original Zero to Mastery web developer course. If you've already learned and you're working already, I'm currently undertaking a junior to senior one and it's fantastic. They also as well have a new Next.js course, which I'm keen on checking out. It's great value at 23 US dollars a month and you can get 10% off by following my link in the description and using my code FRIENDS10. Anyway, on with the show. Hi Milo, thanks so much for joining me. How, how are you doing tonight? Good, glad to be here. Great, good stuff. Well, great to have you on. Uh, so for the for those listeners who aren't familiar with who you are, do you want to give a bit of an introduction to yourself? Yeah, uh, Milo Dennison. I am a, a bit of a jack of all trades, master of none, if you know that saying. So I've worked in technology at Microsoft, at AT&T being the two big ones. Uh, I've been writing quite a bit lately. I published a book called How to Manage Your Manager, all the credit, half the work, which contrary to how it sounds, it actually is about working better with your manager and not trying to get one over on them. And of course, I've been doing a lot of podcasting on the podcast, the 80s and 90s Uncensored, which is kind of a 80s and 90s flashback show where we uh, reminisce about the couple of decades that we can actually remember. <laughs> very nice. Uh, sounds good. I, I don't remember the eighties, but I uh, I admire it very very strongly. Um, <laughs> I was very young, but I do remember uh, I do remember bits. Yeah, so it's a cool decade to um to to look at the media from for sure. Uh, so the the way we usually warm things up on Code Career is a few quick fire questions uh, for for both uh, yourself and the audience's benefit. So just to get things started, it's the big one. Uh, is always the first one. What was your first ever computer? My first computer was a Dell computer that I ordered, and I was. It's funny actually because I was working at AT and T at the time. In I started there in the call center, and we can get into that later. But um, so I had just kind of started, so I didn't have a lot of money or anything like that. And I went down to a Gateway store. If you guys remember, if it, I don't think they were here in the UK, but uh, mm. they were in the US, and you actually get a Gateway computer at the store. And I wanted to buy it on credit because I was poor, of course. And um, the Gateway guy wouldn't sell it to me because I didn't have a phone number because I was working at AT&T. My only phone was my mobile phone. And I'm uh, like, well, I don't need one because I've got a mobile phone. I got a free phone. And they're like, yeah, no, sorry, we can't, you know, you need the actual <laughs> landline. So it's funny how like the times have changed. Now yeah. and now, like now would that be, now would be nothing. So anyway, since they would send one, I went online and ordered one through uh, Dell and got it delivered to my house and was very happy with that computer for quite a few years. Yeah, Dell, Dell make good machines. I think uh, everyone that I know that isn't sort of Team Apple uh, when it comes to programming um, seems to me the gold standard is uh, the Dell XPS lineup for uh, programming. Oh, yeah, definitely. I used uh, the XPS for quite a few years at Microsoft. That was my uh, computer that was there, the flip screen, touch screen. I loved it. It was great. Nice. Yeah, I think if I if I do make the switch over to uh, Linux, which I might do at one point, um, I'll, uh, I'll definitely... Um, 
get, give it a go and uh, so, so, uh, see if I can sort of dual boot it Windows on an XPS. That'd be a good good sort of project, but uh, one to add to my many list of uh, upcoming projects that I need to get Thanks around to, to doing. Do, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the next one will be quite an interesting one for you in particular because you're, you're someone that's worked in quite a few different places. Do you have a favorite tech city out of the places that either you've been to or worked? Uh, being from Seattle, I've got to go Seattle. Uh, it didn't used to really be a tech city east of Seattle in Bellevue and Redmond were really where the tech area is. But then Amazon moved into Seattle, destroyed its culture and turned it into a tech city. So <laughs> I'm still going Seattle though. After that, um, yeah, probably San Francisco from that point on, just cause it's such a cool city. Mm, yeah. I'd, um, I'd love to go, uh, to, uh, well, both Seattle and, and, and Silicon Valley, uh, in general, Seattle is so cool with the history of the music there and everything like that, like oh, all the yeah. grunge scene and that sort of thing. Pretty, uh, pretty cool place. I'd, I'd love to go. So, oh, are Microsoft mainly based out there. Then is that is that their HQ these days? Or yeah, so they're in Redmond, which is uh, just east of Seattle, and their campus is just massive. It's mm. literally just a city uh, in outside of Redmond. It's actually, I would say the Microsoft campus campus is probably larger than the town of Redmond, truthfully. Wow. <laughs> yeah. We, we don't really have those yet in the UK. I've heard of a couple sort of cropping up of uh, campus style. Um, I guess it's just because we don't have that much sort of spare land. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of it. I, I would rather see companies build up taller buildings versus mm. building out because then, yeah, you're just destroying land and, you know, because that whole area in, in Washington state is very covered in trees. It's really beautiful. But of course, there's all these two and three story buildings there for, for offices, whereas I'd rather see somebody maybe be more dense in a city center and go taller. But, you know, that's just me. I'm yeah, look, that's, that's a good point. And you can also repurpose a lot of stuff as well. Like uh, here in Edinburgh, there's quite strict regulation about maintaining uh, what our buildings look like because obviously it's a very historic gothical uh, gothic architecture and everything like that. So, oh, Edinburgh is beautiful. I love Edinburgh. Like, yeah, we've been a few times. We love Scotland. It's yeah, it, it's cool here. We we have a tech scene um, that is steadily growing. Uh, we've got Amazon here uh, as well as a number of other big tech companies and. Um, obviously people, the one people don't realize is, uh, Rockstar, a lot of the work for GTA, um, was, uh, was done in the, uh, in the office just, uh, by Hollywood park. Um, so it's a, it's an underrated tech city up here. I, I, I love it here. Uh, moved earlier this year, but my roots are here. Um, but yeah, I worked in London as well, but, uh, Edinburgh is, yeah, Edinburgh's awesome. <laughs> what, uh, what company do you work for? So I work for a company called Purple Bricks. Um, so Purple Bricks are actually based in Birmingham, uh, down south, but they have a very generous remote policy. So um, I can work in Scotland and uh, come down to Birmingham sort of once a quarter. Um, so it's a good setup. Um, Purple Bricks are always hiring as well for any any listeners that are interested in <laughs> software engineering roles. Um, we're uh, always on lookout for good people. So uh, yeah, what, it's um, um, what what do they what do they do there at Purple Bricks? Uh, so Purple Bricks is uh, we're we're the UK's like leading tech-led estate agent. So if mm -hmm. you want to buy your buy or sell um, a house uh, in uh, a modern way, basically um, with a fully integrated app and um, easily just have book someone to just come around do evaluation and um, work through the process with you. Uh, it's like a so you can sell a house for a cheaper fee. 
uh, and uh, and have a dedicated person and also have all of the supporting tech that the old school estate agents wouldn't have. We're trying to disrupt the uh, estate agency uh, traditional model, and uh, it is very very traditional <laughs> in the uh, in the UK. So I know you're based here at the moment, but I, I, I don't know if you're like uh, I don't know if you've gone through the process of buying a house in the UK, but it's quite antiquated. <laughs> Yeah, I I have found that not to rip on the UK or anything, but it, there are a lot of things that are very traditional. I guess would be the mm. polite way to put it. That yeah, and it's kind of like, come on, guys, get with the times. Like, so yeah, I can. We have a lot that. of feudal laws and that sort of thing around property. Like, there are districts of London that just in uh, still owned by like aristocratic families uh, 450 years ago, which I think would shock a lot of Americans uh, with <laughs> that sort of thing would definitely be outlawed in the constitution or, or something like that, uh, for sure. <laughs> and um, in in terms of when you're actually getting down some work uh, in whatever city you're in, uh, do you have a type of music that you prefer to listen to or, or are you a bit more all over? Uh, it depends on my mood. So I have pretty much a playlist for just about everything. But generally, if I'm like just focused on work, working on whatever, it'll be something kind of chill. So I don't know, like Coldplay or Concrete Blonde, or I've been into a lot of indie stuff lately, like the Avett Brothers and that kind of thing. Um, so I will put music on. I always have music on, especially uh, in the last office at Microsoft I was in. It was an Opus, oh, sorry, an open four plan. And you kind of have to have headphones and music going in order to tune out all the noise around you. Um, and then even when I have an individual office, I usually have music playing just kind of quietly in the background. Yeah, I, I'm the same. Do, do you like open plan offices or, or uh, do you find mm. them a bit distracting? They're definitely distracting. I, I know there was that whole, oh, but you can talk, walk over and talk and do this thing. And it's like, yeah, but then the person sitting next to the person you're talking to has to listen yeah. to you carry on your conversation. So it's actually quite distracting. And then for conference calls, because with a lot of what I did, I was, I'd spent a lot of time on calls. And so you're talking to whatever, doing your presentation virtually. And then, of course, whoever's sitting next to you has to listen to that conversation, even though they don't really want to. <laughs> Um, so no, I, I'm uh, opposed to open floor plans. I think they're terrible. Yeah, I, I'm the same. It's one of those ones that, uh, I'm not sure how it, it, it feels like something with good intentions, but in practice, uh, particularly for tech companies where you'll have a mixture of people, uh, maybe doing sales. So on the phone all day and programmers in the same room, it, it's just a recipe for disaster when you're trying to concentrate and there's phone calls going on. Like when I was a recruiter, um, before I got into software engineering, um, I, uh, I worked for an AI startup and there were 20 programmers in the room and me making, and we didn't have any like internal office rooms yet. We just had one room cause it was a very sort of bootstrap thing. And, uh, I would just have to make like 20 phone calls a day. And these engineers, I actually think they were going to, uh, I thought they're going to strangle me sometimes. Like they were very tolerant, uh, but having to deal with me selling the dream to their potential colleagues 20 times over and over and over again, uh, all, all day. <laughs> yeah, no, it's terrible. And the other thing is it forces people to book conference rooms more often than they probably normally would, right? So maybe you want to sit down and have a quick meeting with one other person or two other people. If you have an office, you can just say, hey, come to my office. We'll throw it up on the monitor and, and go through it or whatever, have the meeting in there. 
but you can't really do that in an open floor plan. So what happens is then you have to book a conference room in order to have your meeting, which then locks that conference room out from somebody who might legitimately need a conference room for a decent meeting. And so it makes conference room booking more difficult as well. So I think companies are figuring out that the whole f- open floor plans aren't as great as they thought they were. I've read a few articles about it and it does seem like some companies are kind of figuring that out. I don't know if they'll actually change their ways or anything, but we'll see. Yeah, I, I think it is definitely steadily moving that way and people always find ways around it. Like I, I've worked in quite a few co-working spaces and uh, the WeWorks in particular are quite bad for people just booking up a conference call if they just want an hour's work to themselves, um, which is understandable, but uh, also slightly annoying if you're trying to have a meeting and you can't find uh, can't find any rooms or anything like that. Um, but it should be interesting to see now with hybrid work models and, uh, you know, what, what companies go for, because I guess we're, we're still figuring that out. Like most, particularly tech companies, most people haven't really gone back to the office much at all. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, and I think it would work fine if for the hybrid work model, because then you could potentially put more desks into an open workspace, but you're not you don't have people there all the time, so it doesn't get as loud. Uh, if you, since you've got people working from home, and you can come up with types of schedules with days people are there and that kind of stuff. So I, I yeah, I like the hybrid work model that it seems like a lot of places are going to, and I I hope it stays. I hope it's something that a lot of them stick with. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it is best because you can just easily coordinate and uh, there's not the presenteeism that can creep in as well. So it's it's definitely, I think it's a natural evolution of uh, of sort of corporate life, really. Um, you know, we had the office system for, I, I guess, around 100 years because I think the office system, without going too deep, the office system came in because uh, railways made it much easier to do business with places further away, so, but you had to keep track of all that business. So that's how the office came about because you had to keep track of all the clerical staff. So I guess it would make sense for the office to explode 100 years ago. Um, so now we're 100 years on now having a, having an alternative. Um, uh, that, that is not an original thought from me. Uh, there's a, a good YouTube channel called Ordinary Things and he did a video uh, on uh, the, I think it's called The Office and How It Ruined Your Life. Uh, and it's a good sort of 20, 30 minute rundown um, on the evolution of offices, um, which is uh, it's funny and informative. Um, definitely worth uh, definitely worth checking out. And uh, I guess, yeah, <laughs> and we're, we're, we're talking flexibility uh, as well. I mean, and also that, that goes towards hours too. Would you say you're early bird or night owl when you're trying to get some work done? Uh, it depends. I used to be a night owl, but I find that I'm switching earlier than I used to. So with me, when I get up, I find that period uh, right after I sit down at my desk up until about lunchtime to be the most productive time of the day, which is really annoying then when people schedule meetings during that time. Uh, it's like, I'd rather go to a meeting in the afternoon when I'm feeling drowsy and don't feel like paying attention to anything. (laughs) But, um, (laughs) But yeah, so right now that's pretty much the most productive time, but I definitely used to be more of a night owl. I find that changing. Mm, it definitely creeps uh, backwards in the day as you get older. I find like I, I used to be a extreme night owl, like especially in like university, like sort of easily staying up until four, five in the morning. And um, now I'm getting into my later twenties and I'm literally <laughs> sort of getting up, uh, get, get, going to bed sort of 1030. I just can't concentrate past uh, nine o'clock anymore. So it's, it's definitely, I, well, to be fair, I suppose it's a less, it's a more chill environment if you're not in university anymore, but uh, yeah, definitely yeah. it's something natural about 
resetting more towards the natural agricultural day, uh, so to speak. And um, obviously, your career has been fairly varied, and that's something we're definitely going to get on to um, later in the pod. Um, But back in uh, back in the day, like uh, your sort of origin story, so to speak, when you were a kid, what job did you want to have? I think the first job I legitimately wanted to have was an entrepreneur because it sounded cool. I don't think I really fully knew what that involved. As far as in my head, an entrepreneur meant I got to wear a cool looking suit. I made lots of money and I had a fancy desk in an office with a bunch of big windows and got to tell people what to do. So that was, that was in my mind what an entrepreneur was. Um, after that, it kind of went into being a writer and an actor. And uh, so, uh, but yeah, that, that, that's my original. I want to be an entrepreneur. What is that? That sounds like a, sounds like a great role. Uh, just, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, cool. So um, how, how, in terms of getting into tech as an industry, how did that whole thing start for you? Because I, I know, like myself, you didn't take the most conventional route into it, did you? Yeah. So I guess for your audience, this might be a somewhat inspiring story that you can get into tech without having a tech background. So with me, I I actually studied theater is originally what I wanted to do. I kind of mentioned I wanted to be an actor there. And I was uh, just working at Starbucks and which was fine because you could go out to auditions and find somebody to cover for you. And a friend of mine or a girl I knew she was working at AT&T at the time, uh, the, the, the phone company that I'm sure everybody has heard of, so I don't need to explain what they do. <laughs> um, I was working at AT&T at the time in a call center, and she was basically just like, hey, you know what they're hiring? Do you, want, do you want me to send your resume to them or CV, as you'd call it here in the UK? And I was like, sure, okay, no problem. And sent it in, went in, and got hired in their call center just answering calls, you know, billing questions for mobile phones and that kind of stuff, uh, technical issues. And it was, you know, anyone who's ever worked in a call center knows it's a terrible job. And I wasn't planning on staying there very long, but I was just like, yeah, it's a good job. I'll make some money and then I'll go back to doing what I want to do. And then within AT&T, I worked my way up. So I actually got out of the phones and I worked in a technical support team within the company. And then I worked on project management, business business analyst and project specialist type work. So I did a few different roles while I was there, but it basically came down to, I was, I was good at my job. And when AT&T switched from the old um, uh, TDMA system to the GSM system, they did this big rollout. They switched their internal support systems. They switched out the, the mobile and it went, it just, it failed miserably. It just all went to crap. And so they had to put together a SWAT team that our role was literally just solving issues as quickly as you could. And so I would, I represented the customer support side and then I worked alongside our IT departments and we all just literally was like, okay, this is the issue. How can we fix it as quickly as possible? And then that led into a project management type role, working releases, software releases. And then when I left, I was doing a bit of software releases and a bit of content management. So anytime you call into customer service, the person you're talking to is basically just reading something off of a screen that says, if the person says, this is the problem, tell them this. I basically wrote that crap that they do. Um, (laughs) So, so feel free to blame me. (laughs) Well, it sounds like you're saving a lot of um, reps, 
customer service reps' lives when they're getting shouted at by an old person yeah, yeah, trying yeah, to use yeah. use their phone. <laughs> yep. Um, and so that led to, so I kind of got a, a burnout or kind of, I, I did a good job of burning my bridges at AT&T. Uh, I left there and took a contract position at Microsoft working on editorial policy. So this was further being search advertising hmm. and uh, worked on that, s- still writing content, doing the kind of same thing. That led to a another contract, which was a release project manager or program manager. Um, and basically, same thing, working on the search, being advertising uh, releases. And basically, it was managing feature sets and, and testing. And I did the uh, was responsible for the user accepted test, testing and all that kind of stuff. And then when that ended, they actually, uh, one of the teams that I worked on was there, uh, was a engineering team that I worked with and basically they were expanding their team and they, and they contacted me and were like, Hey, we do want to interview for this position. Since I'd worked with them, it was pretty easy to get hired on. I did the interviews and was hired on there. Did that in Seattle for quite a few years. And then I moved over to Dublin, Ireland, cause they were expanding the team there. Um, so, I, so I moved over to a lead position on the team in Ireland and uh, worked there for a while and eventually just kind of was like, you know, I just want to do something different and uh, and and uh, decided to to leave Microsoft for a while. And now I'm just kind of vagranting around for my time in the UK until going back to Seattle, which should be sometime next year, this next year. Uh, to where I'll have to actually get a real job again. <laughs> so. Nice. Well, it's a uh, London's certainly a great place uh, to, um, to to be doing uh, doing kind of sabbatical. It's uh, yeah, awesome, uh, awesome city. So you moved you moved straight from Dublin to London then. Exactly. Uh, my wife works for Facebook, and so they had an opportunity for her to move over here, and it was basically London or Berlin. And I don't speak German. She does speak German, so she would have been fine. But I, I, I didn't. I wasn't super motivated to learn it. And we're like, yeah, let's live in London. We have a couple of friends that already lived here, and so that's what brought us here. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I guess like to that history though, for people listening, it just shows that I think there's certain things you can start on in a position that you might not necessarily think you're going to stay with or even want to stay with. But if you do a good job and you make those connections in other positions, it, it creates opportunity for you to move into other technical roles. So when I left Microsoft, I was on the interview lip for for people that did the job I, I was doing that I, when I was hired there. But on the job description, it was kind of interesting because it basically asked for an engineering degree and it asked for all this other stuff that is like, if, if, if I were applying, you guys wouldn't even bother interviewing me. So it was nice that I was able to get that position through that contract work and working well with the people with on that team. Um, so I think that's an important, important lesson for people to learn as they work their way up. It, it's a really good point. Um, something that with this due to be around the 16th episode, I'm actually amazed this has never come up yet. Um, and one of the ways to get into a kind of technical role when you're in a non-technical background, one of the best ways actually to create it for yourself by advancing into it internally, like you don't have to actually leave the organization. Like I, I kind of did that. I, I negotiated 
a contract um, when I was doing consulting as a recruiter, uh, where I would spend 20, 25% of my time engineering and the rest of the time recruiting. But I also know people as well. Like I, I knew a guy who worked at uh, one of the big fashion brands. Um, he was a recruiter as well, actually. Uh, and then he basically taught himself to code and then got a job doing uh, manual QA uh, with them part-time scaled up to automated QA and now he's a software engineer there. So there's so many different ways you can get into it. And the massive bonus there is you don't have to leave and then pay to do some kind of course. So it's kind of a double hit of losing salary, paying tuition and having to pay your living costs. You can keep your salary and oftentimes, particularly a larger organization will uh, provide a learning budget of some kind where you can really just take full advantage and develop skills because it's a win-win situation, right? Like they don't want you to leave. Um, and they could, it's much cheaper to bring someone in internally than it is to have to pay a recruiter uh, a fee to get someone in and pay their salary. So it's a really good point and um, something that people should definitely take away from from this for sure. Oh, absolutely. And, and from a business perspective, they don't have to go through the interview process with a bunch of people because they already know you. But I do like what you said there about getting the training while you're there as well, especially with certain larger companies. Uh, Microsoft is is great at that. When I was there, I was at tons of opportunity for trainings that they would cover, uh, project management trainings and uh, certifications, management certifications, all that kind of stuff, or engineering that you, know, you want to learn how to code, just pick something and you can definitely uh, take it. They'll teach you. Yeah, it's a common question I get actually from people where, because um, obviously this podcast title is a bit of a misnomer because I don't just actually interview coders. I interview people from all over the, uh, the, the tech sector and people always say to me like, oh, Cam, you know, I'm really interested in tech, but I really don't want to have my head in the terminal all day. And uh, even as a coder, I, I kind of get that because <laughs> sometimes I get fed up with it. And people often ask, you know, what's the best way to bridge the gap in, in your experience? Um, how, how do you manage working um, on with both the commercial and technical expectations? Uh, what, what's your experience been like? Yeah, define commercial expectations real quick. I, I would say like both internal and external stakeholders uh, to mm-hmm. some kind of problem um, with also as well trying to build through a standard product lifecycle, um, mm-hmm. if you see what I mean, uh, like standing in between that with the non-technical and technical arm of the business. Yeah, I guess for me, because that's a lot of what I did, you need to know the language of both sides of the business. So um, your hardcore developers are used to sitting in a dark room, staring at a computer all day, typing on their keyboard, going home, playing video games and eating Doritos, (laughs) right? So that's kind of a joke, by the way, so don't get mad at any devs out there. But, but the point being is, is they know what they know their job, right? Like they know how to be developers. They know the tech speak, they know that kind of stuff, which is what they're hired to do. But sometimes when they're speaking to say your external client or customer or whatever, well, that person has no clue about dev speak. And so sometimes you really need to make sure that you know a little bit of both so that that way you can do that translation. And it's so important to be aware of your audience as well in those types of situations um, and not try to like, uh, I don't know if you, you know, if you, if you know all the dev speak, right. Don't try to talk down to your customer saying, Hey, Oh, this, this, and this, and try to make them feel like a jackass. Cause they don't know, you know, try to explain it to them in the, in contents that they would know. 
so I guess that's the biggest one. And same thing with content. I did a lot of content writing. That's another one that drives me nuts. And you see it all the time. You see it on websites that you go there and you're like, you're having a problem with your computer and it's doing something and you're like trying to fix this problem. And you go to a website and it and it's half of it's in, in dev speak. A bunch of it's in acronyms that you don't know what the acronym actually stands for. And so you to try to figure it out. And that's why so many people make YouTube videos is because they're basically trying to explain that stuff because whoever wrote that article on that company's website doesn't know how to create content for the consumer. Um, so, so the biggest one I would say there is know who your audience is and same thing, you know, I, I can, I put this in the book, actually, when you're, when you're doing a presentation on a project that you're working on to upper management, right? So maybe you've got some big executive, your director of your organization. It's not their job to know the ins and outs of what your job is, right? But you need them to sign off on some project that you're working on or some initiative. So you need to present it in a way that they understand without being like, oh, if you go in here and you type this piece of code, it'll turn this button, this collar, and make it do this fancy thing. You need to just explain what they need to know in order to get the decision out of them. And so it's across the board, no matter who you're working with, you need to make sure that you're presenting the information in a language that they'll understand. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, Did that makes answer sense. the question? Was that, was no, that, no, no, that, that definitely answered the question. Yeah. And it, it, <laughs> it's something that I, I've tried to uh, work on myself personally as well, because um, in my previous engineering roles, I wasn't really dealing with any internal or external stakeholders. Uh, the only people I was reporting my code into were other engineers. And it's been, even for someone who used to have a quote unquote commercial job, because I was doing recruitment and kind of sales side, especially when I was an external recruiter, I, I find it really hard to actually translate technical ideas into non-technical terms without being patronizing or flying a million miles over someone's head. Like it, it's, it's a very difficult skill. Um, and I think technical writers uh, in the tech industry are probably the most underappreciated people because uh, it is so difficult to actually trans translate everything to, to strike um, the, uh, the the gap in the middle. It is, it's a real challenge and it's definitely, I, I recommend all devs um, practice communicating their ideas. Um, I'm going to sound like a crazy person, but sometimes if I'm driving in the car, uh, early in the morning and I'm, I'm by myself, obviously, I, I like to uh, practice explaining some kind of idea or something like that. Um, <laughs> I probably do sound a bit loopy, <laughs> certainly to other drivers on the road when they see me talking away to myself, but it's quite a good way of practicing. If maybe you're coding most of the day, you don't really get much practice in presenting and um, explaining stuff. So it's quite, quite a good way to, uh, quite a good way to go. Um, but, you know, they do say talking to yourself is the first sign of madness, so maybe I should watch that. <laughs> yeah, but the real sign is when yourself starts talking back. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll have to keep that in mind. Um, and we've talked about the kind of companies you work for. Obviously, they're, um, they're major companies, uh, Microsoft in particular, and uh, AT&T. Um, everyone knows that they are even here, even though they're not actually a business here. They're that well known just through media and everything. Um, what's been your experience working for those companies, and what have you taken away from that um, versus, say, working uh, for a for a startup? Yeah, I think 
with larger companies, there are a certain amount of benefits that you get because they have the money to spend on those types of benefits, like gym memberships. Uh, you look at Facebook and Google, they give you free lunches and all these other kind of work-related perks. Um, and in, and for me, being able to relocate, right? Like Microsoft has an office everywhere. Uh, and so to have that opportunity to move from Seattle to Dublin was a great opportunity for me and an experience I would not have had working for a lot of other companies. A friend of mine works for a, a smaller startup and they have an office in Dublin and they have an office in New York and he keeps trying to get over to the office in New York, but the company just doesn't have that. Um, it does it just really isn't able to make it happen because of course you got to get work permits, which means you got to justify it to the government in order to, you know, get the work permits. And there's only so many, um, but with a larger company, they can make a lot of that happen. Same with Facebook, right? Uh, my, like I mentioned, my wife works for Facebook and they moved us here. Uh, so, you know, they, they help cover work, uh, or sorry, they help cover the relocation expenses sometimes or the, the, that kind of stuff. So they help all with all the paperwork. I mean, if I had to fill out the paperwork to move to Dublin for <laughs> immigration, I would have, I would have just given up. So it was so nice that they had somebody within the company to do that. And of course, stability, right? I mean, Microsoft isn't going anywhere. Uh, you know, Facebook might, I don't, who knows with him, like they're in the news a lot. <laughs> you name uh, it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Google might uh, stay around for a while, 18 or night, but um, Apple, for example. So there's that stability as well. If that's something that's a concern to you as, as somebody now on the flip side of that, of course, smaller companies might potentially pay more um, because they, you know, really want those good people in there to help the company grow. Um, and they're a lot more agile as well. I think with larger companies, they can be a bit rigid in their processes and their siloed workspaces. So if you need to talk to this engineer, you kind of got to go through this process. Or if you need to talk to such and such team over here, it's kind of a pain in the ass. Whereas in your smaller startups, you're going to be able to just probably get up, walk over to that person's desks and explain the issue to them and kind of work through it quickly because they need to be agile. They need to be quick at moving with the changing times. So that's an advantage to the smaller ones. And there's a certain level of kind of coolness, you know, if you say, hey, I work for such and such small company that's just making this stuff happen. And people are like, oh, wow, that's cool. Like when you were telling me about where you're working, I'm like, oh, okay, I never heard of them. What do they do? Oh, that sounds cool, right? But if you're like, I work for Google, I'd be like, okay, well, that's not that exciting. Like, so, yeah. Uh, so there is that as well. Um, and uh, yeah. Those are probably some of the big differences I've noticed. Hmm. Yeah, those, those are some interesting points. And um, something that often people are very keen to travel uh, in, in this industry with the rise of digital nomadism uh, and everything like that. And actually, uh, people often want to get to the States uh, from, well, from everywhere, obviously, because it, it's, uh, uh, I mean, it's a very interesting place and the highest paying tech sector. So it's a pretty logical destination. And uh, the best way to do it is just to get a job at an American company and, and transfer over eventually. Like it, it's, it, you can allow a big corporate to deal with all the legal stuff because it's what they deal with day in, day out. Like, like you said, who wants to fill out a load of forms? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They have a department of people and that's their job. So fantastic. Yeah. 
that is the major advantage is having all the structure in place uh, and the, uh, the, the learning um, budgets and everything like that is, is great. I mean, uh, I've always ended up like more or less accidentally in smaller companies like uh, Purple Bricks, my current employer is um, by far the largest I've, I've worked for. Um, we've got about 100 people on the tech team, um, but we ought to have as well hundreds of like local agents, but uh, we operate. It's quite a nice uh, hybrid system because we operate as almost like a startup uh, within the company where we have our own Slack and we run ourselves as like almost like an independent organization. So it's quite um, quite a cool way of doing it. So it doesn't doesn't feel too rigid. Um, but yeah, it's it's the rigidity issue. Um, in particular, a couple of my friends that have worked in investment banking uh, in London. A couple of the couple of the banks. One of them, they wouldn't even let the guy install Python on his machine uh, without a manager's permission, and they had to quarantine his laptop uh, for like X amount of time. Um, I guess it's understandable if you're dealing with billions, uh, but yeah, I could see that being incredibly annoying, um, considering how much stuff I have to install on my computer day in day out just to yeah. uh, work with JavaScript. So it's a it's a good it's a it's a good thing to consider for yourself as as a technical professional about which way you want to go and um i'm sure you'd probably agree with me on this as in that it's a good idea to try and work for both at some point in your career oh absolutely i i i I absolutely agree with that because you're going to get both sides and identify which works better for you yeah and um the one, one thing i was really curious to find out about was uh i think you are the most internationally worked guest um that's not really a phrase but you've worked in the most places out of all the guests on the podcast so far how do you find the differences uh between work culture in american companies and even if it's an american company but based in europe what what's the work culture like and what are the differences um so let's see some of the differences between the two i think in the u.s salary is better uh that might be shocking to hear because uh, but it, but it's absolutely true. Um, the, the salaries seem to pay more and, um, even here, cause I, you know, I've looked at a couple contract positions during my time here in London at, at, for PM roles and, and I'll talk to them and they'll be like, well, this is the salary. And I'm like, I, I might as well just get a minimum wage job at, you know, the bar. I mean, then I'll make tips at least, you know, <laughs> as a waiter, and then I'll probably make more money. So it's kind of offensive, offensive some of the salaries, uh, you know, it makes sense for entry level roles, but if you have a little bit of experience, uh, and they're, and they're st- offering the same salaries to an entry level position versus a senior position, you'd like see like a senior PM position, like let's say a full-time senior PM position and the salaries listed as like 25,000 a year. I mean, wow. how, how do you get like a senior PM at 25,000 yeah. a year? It's ridiculous. In London, which is not a cheap place to live, right? Yeah, you get a graduate and tell them they're senior and give them a lot of responsibility. That's exactly. how you're going to have to do it. Yeah. That's probably what they're doing. But um, so salaries are a big difference. Um, work life balance is much better in Europe than it is in the States, which should be no shock to anyone as well. So, for example, I know people who, at the end of the year in the States who will not have taken all of their vacation time. And depending on where you work, sometimes it rolls over to the next year, sometimes it doesn't, or sometimes a portion of it does. And it's ridiculous to me that people would actually end the year and not have taken all of their vacation time. To whereas in Europe, you get more vacation time each year, and people are really good about taking and using it all. 
Uh, so I would say work-life balance in regards to that is much better over here. Um, in regards to the work environments, just the day-to-day -day type stuff, I don't think it's all that different, honestly. Um, I, I was talking to a guy and, and he kind of asked me that. People ask me this question all the time. Like, what's the difference between London, you know, the UK and the US? And Because everybody wants to hear how we're different as people, like what makes us unique. But the reality is most of us are pretty much this, kind of the same, right? Like we go in in the morning, we sit down at our desk, we do the job that we're hired to do. We go to lunch, we socialize, we have a coffee, we go home at the end of the day. So from the day-to-day -day level of what you're doing really isn't that different. I mean, you're, you're a dev, right? So, you know, writing JavaScript isn't any different, <laughs> you know, it's not like, yeah. it's not like it's a, in a, you know, JavaScript UK versus JavaScript US. It's basically <laughs> the same, you know? Yeah. I mean, we, we even have to use American spellings in our variables. So I've got so used right. to typing color without a U uh and uh and center good, good um, job spelled. good job yeah <laughs> i feel like my ancestors as it, as, are as angry with me <laughs> yeah i've um yeah i'm becoming proto-american basically um but uh yeah That's funny it, because i had i had sorry to interrupt there i had to do the same thing writing content uh for microsoft at, in dublin and it was the same thing i had to keep spelling stuff the european style because i was writing it yeah. for the audience over here and i'm like okay with an old color that doesn't make sense but I spell it that way <laughs> yeah there are i have to admit and my uh fellow brits who are listening will be furious me for saying this and call me a traitor um and uh hark back to the war of independence and whatever it was 1776 i think um but i'm sorry but the american spellings make more sense i'm sorry i have to say it thank you <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm going to, I'm, when this podcast comes out, I'm sending it to everybody that has ever lectured me on the way that we spell stuff differently. <laughs> like, oh no, the British spelling's better. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. And certainly in the land of software engineering, uh, the Amer American spellings, uh, reign, reign supreme. Um, hmm. and I, I guess in, in terms of, we're talking like talking about the differences, uh, but something that separates, uh, uh something that. Uh, kind of brings everyone together uh, is when they're leaving school or university uh, and they don't know what to do, um, but they want to get into tech. If someone came to you, it wouldn't matter if they're American or British or Irish or whatever, uh, what would you advise them in 2021? Like, I want to get a job in tech. Um, what, what would you say they should do? I, I would first want them to narrow down what specifically they want to do in tech. Uh, if they want to go into development, then you know, get some certifications, which you can do online, which is fantastic. So get some certifications that you can put on your CV and that'll kind of help get you that interview. Don't be afraid to start out at a lower level, you know, whatever gets your foot in the door and gets you some experience because, you know, if you're getting the job and you're working in a tech industry, it's so much easier to then transfer to either another role within that company or another company entirely, uh, which is generally the best way to get a raise is to actually change companies you work for, by the way. So there's a little hint. Um, so, you know, whatever gets your foot in the door and uh, don't be afraid to apply for like contract and short-term type stuff. Like I actually do it. Like, I really enjoy doing contract work because it has usually a set end date which is kind of nice because you're learning something new. I love learning 
new stuff, like stuff that I've never done before, which is kind of why I've had such a varied uh, work history is because I love doing new stuff and I love learning something new. So if I can get in on a contract doing something I haven't done before and learn something about it and then say, oh, you know what? I really like this. Well, now I've got that experience that I can then take over to a more permanent position if I want to continue in that field. So those are the big ones. Find out specifically what you want to do. Identify what you need, whether it be certifications, which is often the case, or what companies deal with that. And then, yeah, get your foot in the door, whether it be in a lower level position or a contract position and then work your way up mm-hmm. from there. Yeah, absolutely better to already be embedded in an organization and learn from that for sure. Yeah. Uh, I should add also have a good attitude and work well with others. This is a big one, especially with so many people changing roles and companies. You never know who you're going to work with at a later date. And if you burn that bridge, well, that person might be in a position of authority at the next place or your next role that you want to get. And then you're screwed, right? Because they, people remember that kind of stuff. Um, so I think it's really important to have a good attitude and uh, and you know maintain good working relationships with people, which can be hard because we're all so different in so many different ways. And people get frustrating, and so you know, for, you know, work on your soft skills. There mm. you go. There's there's another useful piece of advice. It's a very good point because no matter how good you think you'll feel for burning a bridge, you will really regret it because the industry is smaller than you think, and you just know it's typical. It comes back to bite. Um, so you know, just grin and bear it. Obviously, if there's something serious going on, go to HR. But uh, like, if um, yeah, if you find someone you work with annoying, then. It's just better not to get involved in office politics and that kind of thing is definitely something I'd advise my 21-year-old self would be uh, not to get annoyed with people um, and uh, or at least not let it show. Uh. <laughs> oh, me too. Me too. My, my time at AT&T, I, I, I burned a lot of bridges there. And all of it, I was like, ah, uh, it was just because me being mouthy and me, it's like, I know what I'm talking about. Listen to me. So, uh, yeah, you can say it without actually you know, offending the other person. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's corporate, corporate speak to, um, to, to sort of subtly convey, uh, a euthanism. Uh, that's the word I'm looking for, um, for sure. So on, uh, on that cheery note, um, that sort of brings us, uh, towards the, uh, towards the end of the pod, but, um, I just want to also as well, um, give you a chance to talk a little bit, a uh, little bit more about, um, the book, uh, is, is it out yet or are you still working on it at the moment? It is. Uh, it's uh, how to manage your manager. Uh, all the credit, half the work, and it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek advice book on working effectively with your manager. So don't buy it because you think you're going to learn like ways of like getting pulling one over on your manager or getting away with stuff. <laughs> it, it really is about uh, working well with that person. And I use a lot of my examples of what areas where I didn't work well and where I did. And I use examples from a lot of other people and then some research as well. Uh, It's just like a lot of those types of books are generally written from a top down point of view, which they're well written, you know, but it's like, I'm the CEO of such and such company. And this is what I did as the CEO. Well, not everybody wants to be the CEO. Some people just want to go in and, and, you know, do a good job and and enjoy what they do. Uh, So this is more for that uh, those people. And then, uh, the podcast is the eighties and nineties uncensored. Uh, we release it every Monday 
and it's hilarious and informative and uh, awesome, as you would say in the 80s. Awesome. <laughs> cool. And that, that's a mixture of culture stuff. So that's like movies, music. Uh, I saw you did a bit of true crime on there as well. Yeah, yeah. In fact, we that, the true crime one was a couple other uh, Brits joined us from a podcast and we did uh, crimes that happened in your area. So that was that was a lot of fun when they brought some, uh, we kind of shared some stories about serial killers and murders that happened in areas where we lived. Very nice. That, uh, that sounds awesome. I'm, I'm going to uh, uh, give that a listen tonight. That sounds uh, that sounds really good. And uh, yeah, so if you what, what, once you're done with this episode of the Code of Career, definitely queue it up uh, and, uh, and and check it out as well. But um, Milo, thanks so much for coming on. It's been really awesome to have you on and a really insightful chat. Thanks. A pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Cool. Well, uh, and thank you, listener, as well, for checking out this week's episode of The Code of Career. Uh, remember, we release uh, early each Monday morning. You can check out our entire back, uh, backlog. Um, join our Discord server as well. And I am currently still in the process of configuring the website. So it may be up. It may not be. Uh, but, you know, you can always check it out, codeofcareer.com. All right. Thanks very much, listener, and see you next time.